Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 70 of the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. I know I say this at the beginning of each episode, whether you are a regular listener or if this is your first episode that you're listening to, thank you. Thank you for being here today. This episode is another in our In the C-Suite series. Today's guest is Patricia Ziliox, CEO of Ivensis, a clinical stage biotechnology company based in Paris and Dallas, Texas. Patricia is running a very exciting startup that combines a medical device and gene therapy and is targeting some of the biggest causes of blindness. The idea behind this technology is the brainchild of founder Francine Bahar-Cohen, MD, PhD of Paris. And what I find fascinating is the fact that they do not use a virus to transport the therapy. Instead, they turn a little muscle in the, in the eye into a protein factory. There are advantages to this approach that you will learn about in the next few minutes. We will talk about the technology, Patricia's career, and some of the early challenges in her being in her first CEO role. If you like this podcast, be sure to recommend it to a friend and or subscribe. An easy way to share the podcast is by using the share button on your podcast provider. And links to Patricia's LinkedIn profile and the Ivensis website will be in the show notes. For those of you looking for a community of like-minded medtech professionals, consider looking at the MedTech Leaders community. I am the host of this community, and you can learn more about it at medtechleaders.net. One advantage of being in the community is that most of these podcast videocasts start out as live events, so members can attend and ask questions. And I am working on events related to artificial intelligence in medtech, value-based care, telehealth, and of course, more C-suite interviews. So how and why do you turn a muscle into a factory? Let's get together with Patricia and learn more about that and much more. Patricia, welcome to the Medical Device Success podcast and videocast. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. This is a really I- interesting subject matter about you and your company. Well, thank you, Ted. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. And I think the first thing we should do is just have you give a brief description of, of you and your role at Ivensis and then uh, what Ivensis is generally as a company. So I'm Patricia, I'm the CEO of Ivensis. I'm actually the CEO and the president. Uh, Ivensis is a small French company, biotech company, uh, headquartered in France, but also incorporated in the United States here. And uh, what we're doing, we're developing a new approach to deliver treatment to, uh, to the retina for treatment of retinal disease. And that new approach is called gene therapy, but without a virus. So that's what we're doing. In a, Two words. <laughs> okay. And for uh, listeners, we are going to get into some of this in more detail because it is just uh, fascinating. And so, and we're going to talk about the technology first, the technology and the therapy. We're going to talk about this first because I think understanding more about the technology and the therapy, um, it gives us a better appreciation then to go back and talk about the career path that led you here and some of the challenges that you have. So, uh, and then before we talk exactly about the technology, how long ago was Ivensis founded? So Ivensis was founded about 10 years ago by a retina specialist, a woman, uh, Francine Biar-Cohen. She's a a professor of ophthalmology and ophthalmologist in Paris. It was her idea, it was her technology uh, she has a lot of patients she treats and uh, with no treatment available. And it was really uh, how she created that company and that technology. Okay. And then um, 
you entered the company about four years ago as activity got much more active, to use the word twice in one phrase. But um, okay, going back to the technology and the therapy, I, I think this is super exciting. As as I learned about you and I learned about the technology and about the company, I just find this fascinating because most of us that are listening or participating in this podcast, most of us understand what a medical device is, okay? And it's typically a one gadget or a type of gadget. Maybe it has several different parts. But then we have what we, many of us are familiar with, but becomes a little more complicated, which is a, uh, it's a device plus a therapy. It's what, and what typically people call a combination device. And many of us have heard about that. So let's say like a, uh, that could be a, an implant for a diabetic that is slowly releasing a drug. Okay. But you've done something that goes even a step further, which I find very exciting. So tell us about the, the combination of the device and the plasma, uh, plasmid therapy. Thank you. So the way it works is actually, it's pretty simple. The idea was to take plasmid. I'm sure everybody remembers their classes, biological classes in high school, plasmid, and to encode them to produce therapeutic protein. That's a, that's a process which is simple to do, actually. Nothing is easy in biology, but you can do it. And uh, so you think about the disease in the eye and you try to encode the plasmid to produce what we call therapeutic protein for the target disease. And the idea of Francine was to inject this plasmid in the ciliary muscle, which is a small muscle which is around the eye. And by doing that, not, nothing is gonna happen as you suspect, but there's a technology which is called electrotransfection or electroporation. You basically, put few little uh, holes in the ciliary muscle cells to allow the plasmid to enter in these cells. And the machine takes over, the machinery takes over, and the ciliary muscle becomes a little biofactory producing therapeutic protein directly in the vitreous, in the eye, and also in the choroid, which is uh, these areas behind the photoreceptor, which is exactly what we want. So this is how the concept works. And that's oh. what I find so exciting is that you're turning a little tiny piece of the body into a factory, a protein factory. And so for a lot of people that are listening, don't understand ophthalmology like you and I do, but I think most people remember a little bit about their uh, anatomy classes. And if you remember that in the eye, you have a lens you know, so the, the cornea of your eye focuses some of the, does some of the focusing power of your eyesight. And then there's a lens back there. And that lens can actually be pulled and pushed. And it's pulled and pushed by these ciliary muscles. And that's what gives uh, younger people, maybe not people of my age, but younger people, the ability to focus on things, to accommodate uh, to something that's small or large, close or far. And uh, that's, those are the ciliary muscles. So they're tiny, wiry little muscles that surround the lens and can pull it or push it. And so uh, what uh, Patricia and, and the inventor have done and, and the team, have, they've created a device that actually can go into that small little space, you know, inject the plasmids and then stimulate the ciliary muscle so that it starts producing. And tell us, tell me a little bit more. You and I talked about this the other day, but tell me again the difference between this approach and some of the traditional gene therapy approaches where they're just essentially injecting a bolus of, of material into the eye. So today, it really depends on the disease. If you're referring about injecting bullets of material in the <laughs> eye, you are probably referring to uh, anti-VEGF, which are injected directly in the vitreous, in the eye. And uh, the goal here is really to treat age-related macular degeneration, the wet form, and prevent vessels from leaking. That's what we're trying to do. And these are you injected basically proteins in the eye 
but you have to redo it every month, all the time. So these elderly patients have to come for a shot in the eye in each eyes every month. If you're referring to gene therapy per se, then you are probably thinking about disease of the eye who are due to gene mutations like retinitis pigmentosa. These are kids who are getting blind when they are young or older due to a mutation in the visual cycle. Something went wrong in the visual cycle and the light is not processed correctly. The eye, the photoreceptor are degenerating. And the idea of a scientist is basically to understand what is this mutation and try to come with a protein which will correct with a gene which will correct that mutation. Either they're gonna edit it, either they're gonna augment. And basically, they're gonna try to bring that protein which is missing so the visual cycle can function again. To do that, what science has developed is what we call gene therapy. They do plasmid like we do, but instead of having a little device that we're injected and doing electrotransfection, they put everything in a virus. Virus. Everybody knows what a virus is today. And yeah. these viruses, they are actually, we empty them from their nasty material, they're called AAV viruses. And then you load them with a plasmid and you put a promoter to really guide the virus to go directly in the cell that you, where you want to correct the gene. And that's how gene therapy works. Actually, there's one treatment approved in VI. It's called, um, it's a company uh, called Sparks, uh, and they are correcting a mutation, RP65. And it's absolutely fantastic the work they have done because you have kids who are able to regain vision. The problem with gene therapy for this disease, it's awesome. But if you want to treat a more chronic disease like what AMD, you can do it too. But these viruses are there forever. That means once you inject the virus in, in, the, in the eye or in the photoreceptor, it's there forever. You cannot stop it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is you don't know if you're going to transfect the right cells and you don't know if you're going to produce enough of this protein and everywhere to correct the gene. So that's where Francine's idea was like, how can we get rid of a virus? And everybody tries to think about that, that actually. And that was Francine's idea, the founder, to go after electrotransfection. One of the other problems of viruses, they create immune reaction. We don't want that in the eye. We don't like that. And the other problem with viruses is that, which is not too much a problem for some of these diseases, but there's a cargo capacity. What does that mean? You think about uh, a taxi or you think about a truck. You try to put this plasmid in a taxi. If your gene is too big, it's not going to fit in. And some of these mutations, you need big cargo and virus will not be able to do it. So I'm trying to visualize a little bit the difference between gene therapy, injection in the eye of a protein directly and what we're doing. No, I think you did a great job. Thank you. And so going back to electrotransfection, which is your technology, um, you get a little bit, you get a lot more control over how the um, uh, the protein is created and then delivered, how long do you expect the ciliary muscle to produce this for you when you've done one of these uh, uh, injections, so to speak? I shouldn't use the word injection, but in a way, that's what it is. <clears throat> so right now, based on animal data and based on experience we have, and based on the physiology of a cell of a ciliary muscle, we expect that uh, an injection every year should be enough or maybe every six months, which is a sweet spot for the doctors because doctors, ophthalmologists, they like to see their patient every six months or every year at least uh, to make sure nothing goes wrong. And I think that's why we can make a difference because an injection probably will be necessary, which is okay. But also the ophthalmologist may say, okay, that's not the right treatment for that patient. Let's stop it and do something else, which is very important too, if you think about. Right. And it could really help with the log jam of patients in some of these offices with the advent of the um, uh, anti-VEGF you know, injections. These 
retina specialists are sometimes seeing, you know, 80 to 100 patients a day or more just to keep up with the injections because, as you said earlier, they need to be done once a month. Tell me about the the um, diseases that you are attacking that you're trying to treat with this particular uh, technology and therapy. So the two diseases that we're really trying to uh, to uh, treat, the first one is wet AMD, age-related macular degeneration, the wet form. That's where the treatment already exists. But to your point, this is also treatment we require that the patient be treated, have a shot in the eye every month or every two months. As you know, in the past two years with COVID-19, that was not really acceptable. So what's happening, the patient don't show up to the visit, the disease gets worse, and then if the machine is out, it's, uh, it's too late, and it's very difficult to get the vision back to this patient. So that's the first one that we're attacking because we think we can make a difference for these patients. The second disease we're trying to attack is the dry form of AMD, or late stage, which is called geographic atrophy. Uh, in that situation, uh, it's an aging patient. You have accumulation of drusen. Starts, it starts to become atrophy. This lesion becomes bigger and bigger, patient low vision. And here again, what we're trying to do is try to treat this patient as early as possible so the disease does not progress as rapidly and the patient can keep vision. In both situations, we're talking about patients who are elderly patients, by 80s or plus, uh, they don't drive sometimes anymore. And it's very, it's a burden for them to go to an ophthalmologist every month to get in a shot in each eye and to prevent progression of the disease. And uh, these are the two diseases that we're uh, prioritizing first. If in a biotech, you need to raise money all the time. If money comes there and we have enough money, <laughs> third disease we would like to do in parallel is actually retinitis pigmentosa. In that situation, we don't, we're not going to be able to give vision back to this patient. But our goal is to slow down progression of a disease, which means these kids, instead of losing vision in two, three years, they may lose vision over a period of 10 years. 10 years is huge, as we all know. All depends on the mutation, of course, but that's what we would like to accomplish. This is the key disease we're targeting. Okay. Yeah, no, that's that's really fantastic. And uh, for listeners, um, you know, we are using the acronym AMD frequently here because that's the way people like me and Patricia talk in the ophthalmology world. You may be familiar with macular degeneration, and it's the, the probably the leading cause of blindness, I think, in the United States is um, AMD right now over diabetic retinopathy. Am I correct? I want... Probably the same. I it's one say. of the top three for sure. Yeah, it's definitely one of the top three. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you talk to anybody in your family, especially um, uh, the elder members of your family, uh, somebody may have a, a stage of macular degeneration, dry or wet, and or they have friends that have it. So it's a very common disease. It's debilitating. And your point, Patricia, about a burden on loved ones is is very true because if somebody has to every month take a part of a day off work to drive uh, one of their parents in to get an injection, that adds up over time. So um, yeah, exactly. Those are, anyway, those are great targets for, uh, for the, the technology and the, and the therapy. What kind of regulatory challenges does this present? Because I don't know how many, I mean, sure, gene therapies, in a way, they turn part of the body into a, a pro producer of, um, of proteins. But this is very focused, where you're essentially saying, we're going to take this particular little muscle and we're going to turn it, turn it into a protein factory for a limited amount of time. What kind of challenges does that present from a regulatory standpoint? So it, it is a combination of product. It is going to be regulated by the FDA as well as in Europe by the, what we call the biological department. It's a plasmid or producing protein. So this is what we have. That's the regulation we have to obey to. The device is just there to help basically to inject and allow the, 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 the plasmid to penetrate in the ciliary muscle cells. So you, we have to obey to all the regulation of biologics. 
And regarding the device, it is a medical device. We have to follow all the all the regulatory requirements for validation, verification, manufacture of the device without having to do a CE mark or a 510K. But the regulation is all the same. In terms of challenge, I would say that BFDA, as you know, really works closely with people like us to try to, for not having roadblocks, they are helping us. Having said that, we have to demonstrate safety of the plasmid and we have to demonstrate safety of the electrotransfection. We have to demonstrate that in animals and then of course in clinical trials. So it is a lengthy process. I would say the biggest challenge is the length it takes. And actually what the FDA wanted for us to do first, they wanted us to demonstrate safety of the electrotransfection, safety of the plasmid, and we did that in a clinical trial, but for another indication, which is called non-infection uveitis. That indication was only chosen because this is a disease, a systemic disease, where patients get blind, there was no treatment available. And that's the reason we choose that indication as a tactic to validate, demonstrate safety of the electrotransfection. So I would say in summary of my talk here is the challenge of a combo is time. It's not too much to do it. There's a logic behind, MDA works with us. It's more of a time it takes to get there because every little step has to be validated, verified and demonstrated that it's safe. And time is money, as you know, which means raising money for us. Right. And so um, where are you in the the different phases of your clinical trials, phase one, two, three, whatever? So we're definitely not in phase three. So for these two diseases uh, that I talked about, uh, the wet AMD, we're still in preclinical, we're starting IND enabling phase. Uh, for the second one, for, uh, for geographic atrophy, we're launching our clinical trial in spring next year. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are we're still pretty well in the enabling phase. For the uh, safety of the device, obviously we were in the clinic, uh, but again, uh, uh, that's where it, the messaging is a little bit difficult to say, are we a clinical stage company, are we not? Well, we are yes and we are not. We are yes in terms of the device because we demonstrated safety and feasibility of the device. So at that stage, we are in phase one, phase two, we demonstrate it, but in terms of a two target indication, while still in IND enabling phase. Okay. And so right now it could be, what, four or five years to commercialization? Yeah, unfortunately. This, <laughs> and the reason is uh, these diseases are slow progressing and uh, you have to demonstrate the benefit to the patients. Uh, in geographic atrophy, it takes about two years for a patient to lose vision. So that's the reason you have long duration studies uh, with high number of patients and uh, that takes generally two to three years, one year for enrollment, two years for follow-up. So that's right. it. It's too bad. It's takes so long because it's just so exciting and, it, and the benefit can just be phenomenal to patients all around the world. I'm going to um, share the screen and just show people, people that do view the uh, video, I'm going to show them this really short video that you have on your website. And by the way, in the show notes, I will have links to the Ivensis website. There'll be a link to uh, Patricia's LinkedIn um, profile. And so you'll see these things and you can, you can look at this inf information again. But this little video, you can see the instrument approaches the sclera of the eye. And now we're going to get a close-up. I'm going to pause it here for a second. The sclera of the eye for everybody is the white of your eye. And so this instrument is approaching the sclera where it uh, intersects with the cornea, which is the clear part of your eye. So just on the outside of your, of your cornea is where this instrument uh, intersects with the, the sclera of the eye. And then it um, sends some probes into the eye. One probe is in the ciliary muscle and it is injecting the plasmids and the other probes are carrying the electric current and they create the electrotransfection, which then turns the ciliary um, muscle into a protein factory. And it's producing, I think the protein, correct me if I'm wrong, Patricia, is transferrin? 
So it depends on the disease. Uh, for geographic atrophy, it's transferring, which is an iron chelator. Okay. Uh, and for wet AMD, it's an anti-VEGF. Uh, and we added another protein in it, which is uh, decorine, which is an antifibrotic. Okay, so very good. it depends good. on the disease. Got it. Very good. So now everybody has heard about this fascinating technology. Very exciting, like I've said several times already. The next question is, how does somebody progress through a career and end up with a job running a company like this? Very, very curious about this. So let's just, if you could walk through the early part of your career for us, so listeners have an idea of the kind of positions and responsibilities that you had. So, yeah, how did I end up here? It was always my dream to come to the United States. This is the country where the American went on the moon. So for me, I was fascinated by that country. It was my dream. But having said that, I graduated with a PharmD PhD from University of Strasbourg in France. And I joined a small company at that time who was already working in VI. They were, uh, they were producing uh, eye drops. Uh, uh, for somebody that some of you may know, uh, Dr. Albert Schweitzer, who was uh, trying to treat patients in uh, Lombarene in, uh, in, in Africa. I joined this company, and uh, very quickly, that company was acquired by an American company, which is called Alcon. And uh, that was my dream becoming true. Uh, with Alcon, uh, I could join an American company and be transferred to the U.S., to Texas. And uh, I did all my career growth in Alcon. Uh, I grew for the organization. Uh, I had uh, a tremendous mentor in that organization, uh, awesome people who told me the job. Uh, and also, uh, I want to acknowledge all the ophthalmologists in the United States who spent tons of hours teaching me about the retina and uh, how this disease works. And this is something which uh, was a great asset. It's really uh, an icon company, but the ophthalmologists... Uh, uh, we underestimate uh, their, uh, also their role in uh, how to develop drug. So that's how I ended up. Uh, and then Alcon, uh, Novartis uh, purchased Alcon. I didn't stay very long with uh, Novartis. It was a bit too big to my taste. And so I left them. And uh, I joined an organization who also was awesome, which was a Foundation Fighting Blindness in D.C. And uh, here again, I want to speak highly about this organization because their mission is really to advance the science in the field of rare disease. And uh, they, their role is really to, uh, to uh, fund uh, uh, science, clinical trial, and help to create company who can develop treatment for this eye disease. And that's what I did over there. I brought my experience from Alcon. I worked closely with the FDA and the NIH and others, uh, and uh, we did it. Uh, when I joined this company, uh, this organization in 2011, I think there was one clinical trial ongoing for RP. Uh, today, there are something like 300. Uh, I would say there's not one single trial where the foundation was not involved in one way or the other. That's Absolutely. fantastic. Yeah, I really want to say two words about them because uh, the mission and the vision of uh, Mr. Gunn was absolutely amazing. Uh, but having said that, uh, uh, I, while I was doing that, while I was creating a company with Foundation Fighting Blindness in Paris, in France, uh, I ran into this organization. And at the same time, for personal reasons, uh, I decided to get a little bit closer to home again uh, to take care of my dad. And uh, this was the opportunity to combine both, combine a unique opportunity with a unique treatment approach. And... Uh, get closer to my country and my dad, and at the same time bring everything, all my knowledge I learned from Alcon, from the States, and from Foundation Fighting Blindness and try to apply to this technology. So that's in a nutshell. That's in a nutshell. Wow, it's a big nutshell. Let's go back to Alcon. What was your first job at Alcon? Uh, my first job at Alcon, uh, so when, when, the company, when Alcon acquired the company in France, I was in regulatory affairs. That was terrible. I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> regulatory affairs, like the department of, we, in marketing and sales, we call that the department of no. <laughs> it's terrible. Okay. So, But it's necessary. It's important. It is. But uh, when Alcon came, uh, I, I, they, they trained me immediately in clinical trials. That's what okay. I did. I started to learn about clinical trials. And it's true, when I came here uh, in uh, 
1997, that's when we started to work in retina. I didn't know what the retina was in the eye, barely. So I spent a long time in New York with a group of doctors, Dr. Januzzi and, and, and Slachter and Geyer. They spend a lot of energy teaching me how to treat this patient and what can we do. And uh, that's how I started. So it was really clinical. Right. And just for uh, listeners to understand, uh, Patricia was, I guess you were the highest level person at Alcon in the area of uh, clinical trials. Is that correct? I was head, yeah. When, yep. uh, yeah, yeah. I was head of clinical, yeah. For right. Technology. Which is sort of fascinating because most people are used to somebody becoming a, uh, a CEO. Many of us are used to them coming out of you know, a, a marketing or more of the commercial side. And you're coming up from very much the scientific and uh, clinical execution side, which of course is very important for Ivensis right now. And so it's, it's obviously a good choice. And one point I want to make to listeners, and I've made this in past podcasts, is the value of working for a large company early in your career. Uh, I'm a big believer in that. I know a lot of people think like, well, big companies are the bad guys because they watch way too much TV or movies. And, you know, somebody in a corporation is always doing something bad if it's a big company. But um, I think it's big companies, there's plenty, mostly the majority of big companies are great places to work. They have great missions. They have great value uh, values that they live by and they can really train you and they can, and I recommend to anybody that you get involved, get a few promotions before you go off wandering around the uh, metaverse of small companies. Um, okay, so what specifically happened that got you interested in Ivensis, that brought you and Ivensis together? I really think this is the technology. As I said, when I was at Alcon, we worked on tons of drug delivery systems. We worked on polymers. We worked on, you name it. And uh, I worked on tons of these uh, delivery systems we tried them in the clinic um, and we failed. And we failed because it's difficult. We failed because reproducibility, delivery, surgery in procedures, uh, clinical trials, tons of things. And uh, when I was at Foundation Fighting Blindness, I saw the gene therapy coming up and I love uh, Spark, what they was doing with RP65 and AGTC and all this company, but I also knew that the virus, there are issues with viruses. I knew that. And uh, what concerned me, especially for chronic disease, is that you cannot stop it. So for me, I went this, uh, I knew it would be difficult because of a device, but I knew it was different. I knew the proposal for how to treat these patients and for the doctors would, would be different and would be an opportunity. But I knew it would be difficult uh, talking about the device, the first device we developed was a little bit, you know, a little bit rough. Today we have something much more sexy, I would say. But uh, it was a long road, uh, and uh, I know investors are impatient, but I know it's worth because we really, I really believe strongly. After all my experience for all these years, we can make a difference. Okay, well, I think you will be making a difference. And of course, that's one of the big motivations for taking the job is to do something where you're going to, to make a difference. But at the same time, you see these challenges, you know, you're, it's like you're going into outer space and you're trying to land on the moon. Was it a little bit scary or intimidating? I think the, the part which was, you, you talked before about I'm an unusual CEO who doesn't come from marketing or finance. I would say, yeah, every single investor told me I had I knew nothing about finance, <laughs> which is not true. So I, that part initially was intimidating until I realized that uh, uh, you run a company uh, the same way you run your budget at home. You know, you try to have a budget, a plan, how you're going to execute and how much it's going to cost you and how much you're going to spend and how much you're going to need money to raise. So uh, at the beginning, I think that part was a little bit intimidated. The rest... Uh, I was at a good school at Alcon. I was well prepared to address all these issues. Right. Well, that's also one of the points is you can do many of these things with your hands tied behind your back, and that gives you time to focus on something you're not so familiar with. But one of the things that you and I talked about when we were preparing for this is 
over the years, as you've just been mentioning, and you've been giving a trip, you've been paying tribute to many of the people and organizations that you've worked with. You've developed this really powerful network of people, you know, doctors and industry and and you know engineers and designers and and so on. Um, how has that helped you and your team? I would say that was key. It was key. Uh, of course, when I was at Alcon, I would go down the hall and ask, you know, my neighbors, how do you do that? When I arrived at foundation, it was over. I was alone by myself. <laughs> and that's when I started to reach for networks, uh, people who knew how to do it. And what I discovered at Foundation Fighting Blindness is that people want to help you. It's in the human nature. Humans want to help each other. Uh, it doesn't come across always this way today, but I think at the, at the end, people want to help you. And that's what I discovered with Foundation Fighting Blindness. I would not have been able to do what I did over there without the help of people. And I use the same approach for uh, events. I reach for people where they can help me. I'm not shy about asking questions. Uh, I try not to be abusive about their time, of course, and I need to recognize their contribution always. But uh, it's very important. You cannot know everything. It's it's super important to be able to reach for the best people in the field to help you out. And uh, I would say you cannot go in this job alone by yourself. You have to have this network of people you can trust. It's super important. I can't agree more. And I think for listeners and viewers, especially younger people, and we have a lot of young people that listen to this that are thinking about their careers, is if you can really make sure that you're creating good connections with people and not networking necessarily for networking's sake, you know, like just to score points, but you're actually creating friendships where you provide value to these people. You help them out with some of their issues and they will help you out with some of yours, some of your challenges. And I, I think that's so important for people in a career. And there is an advantage in this by perhaps staying in a certain lane professionally maybe a certain particular kind of community, you know, in this case, we're talking about ophthalmology. Um, and for somebody else, it could be orthopedics or it could be urology. There could be some advantages to that, although you can change specialties. But anyway, the great comment. Thank you, Patricia, uh, on talking about the network and how important that is. What were your biggest challenges? You know, you accept the job four years ago, and now we're, we're moving into leadership. So for everybody that's listening, what we started out was technology and therapy. Then we just talked about the career, which is Patricia's foundation. And now we're going to talk a little bit about leadership uh, before we wrap everything up. So four years ago, you're offered the position. The investors and the people have gotten over your supposed weakness on finance. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But what were your biggest challenges four years ago? I would say um, when, I, when I took over the company uh, in biotech, you, know, you, don't, you don't have 300 people working for you. So you want to make sure your data are real. That's the first thing. And in science, you always have to repeat your data and you will be surprised to discover that many, many times your data are not reproducible. So that's the first thing. That was my first challenge. Whoever had done the science before at the university of whatever, and it's not about the reflection about people. It has nothing to do with people being bad or good. It has to do with science. In biology, you have to repeat things to make sure it's true and it works. That's the way it is. So, it's like cooking, you do a cake, but doesn't mean the second time it's gonna be as good. It's exactly the same. So that was my first challenge. My second challenge was fundraising. Nobody had prepared me for that. I was focusing so much on the development, on the combination, on the regulatory path, on the clinical, how we're gonna treat the device, how we're gonna develop it, etc. That for me, money would follow because that's how it was at Alcon. Well, it did not. <laughs> There's something which is called fundraising. Uh, it's convincing investors that, you know, they should invest in your company. And uh, it's not data-driven. And uh, that was the biggest challenge, I would say, I discovered. It's, fundraising is not data-driven. It's much more complex than I right. thought it was. 
Right. And I, and I, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I do want to ask one other question before we go there. And how, what would you describe, how would you describe your leadership style and or philosophy? Inclusive. Uh, I always describe my leadership like our, our company is a puzzle. Everybody represents a piece of a puzzle. At the end of the day, we have to get the puzzle together. I want everybody to understand the big picture. For me, it's absolutely key especially today where everybody works remotely. I'm in Texas, some of the companies in France. Uh, explains your vision, explain the big, the, the big picture, and to make sure that all your organization understands the big picture. You were talking about uh, young people before. Uh, I would add one advice to these young people when they start their career in a big pharma or small pharma, it doesn't matter. Try to understand the big picture Pretend for two minutes you are the CEO of a company. How would you, how would you build your strategy? The big picture. We don't teach that at school. We teach you to learn by heart, to memorize. But uh, I try to really, really spend extra time to explain what's my thinking behind the big picture. That would be how I try. That's what I would like to be recognized as, as a leader. So transparent. Transparency, of course, communication, but not just really always focus on the big picture. Got it. I think that's okay. absolutely important. Okay. And then let's, we're going to go back to the fundraising and also your network, all these people that you know. And there are a lot of very smart, very uh, competent, and very credible people in your network. So tell me about the strategy that you took in selecting your uh, board and your advisors? So on the board, uh, I have to admit that uh, the board is constituted of your investor. When uh, I joined the company, it was already created. So I had already board member there who are present. So I didn't have to pick and choose, but I did pick and choose my chairman. And my chairman is my ex boss at Alcon. He was the head of Alcon. So that was uh, the first thing I did. Uh, and I did that because it was somebody that uh, I knew he knew my strengths and weaknesses, and which is somebody I needed to trust. He knew the eye, obviously. He knew the ophthalmology. That was super important for me. And I knew also that he would be uh, he would be uh, generous with his time, and he would be also he would tell me the truth. He would there would not be as I said, no, there would be no politics. He would tell me exactly if I screwed up. And uh, what I did too, I added some people on my on my expert team coming from big pharma as well. Uh, at different roles based on the expertise I need with the same goal. I, I wanted the best people I trust from my past to be my advisor, but what I want from them is they tell me the truth. I don't want to be bullshitted. I, want, I don't want to hear that I'm great. I want to hear what I'm doing wrong. And that's, uh, that's how I build my network of experts. And uh, at the board, as I said, I had limited control because uh, when you have a board investor, probably an observer or members, but you have an opportunity to have uh, independent as well. So that's what I did. Right. And one thing I'll tell all the listeners is that if you go to the website and you look at the board of directors, and if you look at the advisors, I can tell you because I'm familiar with many of the names on that advisory list, they are the leaders of ophthalmology in their respective areas of expertise. So one of the results of that is that it would build confidence in somebody that was thinking about investing in the business, correct? You would hope so, but it's not the way it goes. It's not <laughs> data-driven. <laughs> it's not data-driven. That, that's, I would say, here you start to do the challenge. You can have the best advisor in the world. Uh, there's something which is called you know, the right fit. It's like dating a guy or dating a woman. She may be beautiful and gorgeous, but that doesn't mean she's gonna be the right fit. And uh, it's the same in fundraising. You, have, you can have the best technology, but maybe you are too late, too early. You have already uh, secured too much money. You are not in clinical yet. You asked me the question before, are you in clinical? Uh, not yet. Uh, so there are tons of, tons of reasons why you get a no. Tons. None of them are data-driven, and you don't know the rules when you arrive. You don't know. You have to pitch, and then you have to cross your fingers. Uh, you have to try to explain that your technology is awesome, and you have to second-guess that uh, 
they may invest in you. And that's not data-driven. Right. Now, the concept of using um, electrotransfection to make a body part into a factory, could that be applied to other parts of the body? So it is already applied in other parts of the body, actually, uh, for vaccine. Uh, it's applied. But each part would, depend, would be a different device. So uh, VI is unique because if you think about it, you have to, what we're trying is to express protein. VI is a closed compartment. So the protein are directly in VI. If you go in another part of the body, well, you have to express much, much more protein. So you will need a different device and it may be not as successful. So you could, would need a different device, different electrotransfection parameters, but maybe a little bit more challenging for that reason. Eye is easy. It's closed. It's small. Right. Can you can you say, I don't know if it's on your website, can you say how much money the company has raised so far? Uh, if we are able to close with uh, 25 million right now, we have, we would be at 73 million. Okay. So right now you are looking for 25 looking, million. Right. I'm looking still for 13 million. No? 13. 13. So you're halfway there. So if somebody has a, if somebody has a very, uh, that's listening has a very fat wallet and they want to <laughs> get rid of some of that money, we have a good place if they're willing to wait just a, a few years for a return on investment. What other advice do you have for uh, C-suite leaders that are involved in a product with a like with a long development type timeline. Yeah, that's that's a difficult question. What what advice? Uh, I would say first try to uh, try to try to capture this timeline. Work with your regulatory people and your drug development people and your tox program, and try to map out as quickly as possible why it's going to take so long and, you know, what does it mean, the definition of long? And that's the first thing that you're going to have to be transparent with your your uh, investors. And the reason, and it's probably a mistake I have done, is things are intuitive for me. I have done that for 30 years. But for an investor, they may not understand always. And so mapping out as quickly as possible with your expert why it's going to take so long what are your challenges? What are going to be your deliverables or inflection point, whatever you call it, and make it transparent. That would be my first advice. Everybody will understand once they are explained, but they will not guess it on their own. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, and so we're going to, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to throw you a curveball and ask you sort of a fun question. Since you're French and you're living in Texas, obviously you must you must have learned about barbecue and you must like it. Do you like barbecue? I like barbecue, but I try to stay away from it because it doesn't go in the best part of the body. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what about, do you, are you, do you do any French cooking at home? I, that's have, the only thing I know how to do. I only do French cooking. Absolutely. I love cooking. It's my second passion because, uh, I love cooking and I do French cooking. Uh, my only frustration is uh, my house. I always have time to cook for my friends, but American people never invite me. So it's very frustrated. I guess they don't want to cook American food for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, they're making a big, they're making a big mistake. Well, in my house, and I hope the listeners will put up with this for just a second, but in my house, I'm the cook. I, I do really enjoy cooking and I have to do a cassoulet dinner for uh, a group of people in January. And I've done a cassoulet once and it came out, I would say good, not great, but really good. And I would, the last time I was in uh, Paris, which was in 2019, I was staying um, in the Montparnasse area um, by near like, like, is that Garden Or? No, is that there? Montparnasse. Montparnasse. Mo okay. Montparnasse. That's, there you go. And I ate at this place, La Cerise, and they specialized. I know it very in, well in Japanese huh? food. Is this in Japanese food? No, the La Cerise was a restaurant de Sudest. Okay. Um, and he specialized in, and they had a cassoulet dish there that was just outstanding. And I'm thinking about, I got, I'm thinking about sending him an email and getting some tips. But <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. so 
Yeah, I, I love to cook. So, well, well, your American friends have to learn uh, to invite you over and not be such scaredy cats. I have to applaud you because cassoulet is one of the most difficult dish to do. It takes it's like hours three, day, hours. three days of work. Exactly. So it's yeah. tough. And uh, for coming back to Ivan's, uh, we used to have our headquarters in the Tour Montparnasse in Paris, in that tower. Oh, really? But, yeah, but we got kicked out because we are renovating the tower to make it uh, eco-friendly and uh, energy independent. So everybody oh. has been kicked out. So right. Just a little note. Well, this little restaurant is on uh, is uh, 70 Boulevard Edgar Quinet. Yeah, I know yeah. very well. Yeah, that's that's where the restaurant is. Great little place. But um, anyway, some uh, we'll we'll get back to <laughs> we can get back to business. Well, I've I've really appreciated this. I I think we've covered everything. I I'm looking at my list of questions here, and I think we did. You think I missed anything? No, I think uh, you covered a lot. As I said, for young people, I would agree with you. Starting in a big pharma and and try to learn is definitely a good school. It's a great school. Not easy to get in, however. Not easy. Right. But, and or, uh, and or big medical device like uh, um, Medtronic or Johnson and Johnson, yeah. which is pharma and medical device. But yeah, there's there's definitely advantages to those, and that's that's what I encourage people. Well, Patricia, thank you very much for spending time with us today. This has really been terrific. I've really enjoyed this. And I look forward to following up sometime in the future to see how you're hitting your milestones. We could have a short, another short podcast about this. That would be awesome. I would love that. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I am really looking forward to following the success of Patricia, Francine, and the Ivensis team as they pursue this elegant solution to some of our worst eye diseases. A couple takeaways from this conversation. First, make a commitment to be an expert in your functional role. This is your foundation. You can always expand your functional responsibility later. Second, network in an authentic way. Network within the area of your expertise with other people like yourself, but more importantly, network outside of your area. These connections can really help you as your career progresses. Surround yourself with supportive people that won't bullshit you about your performance. And finally, be willing to ask for help. Thanks for spending the last hour with Patricia and me. Now go win your week. <laughs>